Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Paul Snyder really wanted a gun. First, he borrowed a revolver from a friend named Chip, but Chip was leaving town and asked for his gun back. Next, Snyder asked a private investigator about how he might buy a machine gun for home protection, he explained. The freelance detective he consulted talked him out of that idea. Finally, Snyder saw a classified ad for a 12-gauge Mossberg pump shotgun. He circled the ad, called the owner, and drove to the San Fernando Valley to pick up the weapon, but returned home empty-handed after he got himself lost. Lucky for him, the gun's owner was happy to deliver the shotgun to Snyder instead, meeting him at a construction site where he even taught Snyder how to load and fire the powerful weapon. A few days later, Paul Snyder used that shotgun to blast his estranged wife in the face, killing the statuesque model and burgeoning Hollywood star in a horrific murder-suicide that would shock the nation, rattle Hollywood, and draw scrutiny upon, and lawsuits against, one of America's richest, most influential men. The bitter battle concerning murdered playmate Dorothy Stratton is going to the courts. Stratton's mother and sister have filed a $5 million lawsuit against Hugh Hefner. This is the story of the 1980 murder of Dorothy Stratton, just months after Playboy magazine had named her Playmate of the Year. Inspiration for the episodes in this series come from all sorts of places. Sometimes the case is from a spreadsheet I've been tweaking since we launched two years ago. Sometimes I stumble across a case that happens to be mentioned while researching another case, and I go down that route while my interest is still piqued. This week and next week's episodes were sparked by something a little different, a purportedly based-on-true-events Hulu series. Is this some kind of joke? Not at all. I mean, do you like looking at naked dudes? I have something to tell you, Paul. Women get horny. Welcome to Chippendales! Welcome to Chippendales was a dark, intriguing, and certainly well-scripted tale bookended by two separate murders. A lot of the series was rooted in reality, but I knew enough offhand about the first murder it depicted to realize that there had been some liberties taken with the tale, so I decided to tackle both of the killings in the series to help viewers understand what was true and what wasn't. For those who haven't seen the series, know that this won't preclude you from watching it. This hopefully just helps root the drama a little bit more firmly in reality, which I think most people would agree is the most respectful thing to do for the real people involved. At the heart of today's story was the troubled marriage between Paul Snyder and Dorothy Stratton, two Canadian-born L.A. transplants hoping to make it big in the U.S., 
Dorothy was quickly faring much better than Paul, who was, in short, a hustler. One of those guys who talked a big game and wore the right clothes, but never really had a lot going for him, blessed or be damned. He was what ABC News called a local pimp and small-time promoter. Granted, that's largely an assessment made in hindsight. He must have had a charming side, too, that drew Dorothy to him to begin with. They met when he was about 27, and she was still a teenager, barely out of high school. She'd been born in 1960 as Dorothy Ruth Hoogstraten, the oldest of parents Simon and Nellie Hoogstraten, who had immigrated from the Netherlands. After Dorothy, the couple had a boy named John. Simon left Nellie for another woman when Dorothy and John were still quite young, after which he lost contact with his children. A few years later, Nellie remarried and had a daughter named Louise in 1968 from a Biography Channel documentary. But Dorothy's new stepfather had a violent temper that dominated the household. The day he broke John's arm, Nellie picked up her children and left him for good. Dorothy Hoogstraten, as she was then known, was a sweet, lanky girl who considered herself fairly unremarkable. Throughout high school, the shy, awkward teenager earned straight A's. After school and on weekends, Dorothy worked at a local Dairy Queen to help her mother pay the bills. Dave Redlick, her former Dairy Queen boss. At 14, she was tall and skinny, built like a two-by-four. She was quiet. She kept to herself and uh, always looked away when I talked to her or tried to discuss anything with her. She had never had eye contact. She was a bit bookish, drawn to poetry and law. The idea of becoming a model certainly hadn't been on her radar until she met Paul Snyder when she was still a teen slinging Sundays in Vancouver. She would later tell Johnny Carson, One day this gentleman walked in with this gorgeous blonde, this long fur coat, and I had him sitting at, um, waiting on him at the Dairy Queen, two little pigtails and a little red smock on, and I said, can I help you? And he said, what's your name? Paul was a few years older in age, but by decades in life experience. He'd grown up in Vancouver's East End, which the Village Voice would describe as, quote, a tough area of the city steeped in machismo, end quote. Paul's parents had broken up when he was young and neither seemed very interested or capable of taking care of him. He quit school in the seventh grade and began fending for himself. He had that frustrating mix of ego and insecurity that most abusive people tend to have. Embarrassed by how skinny he was, he began lifting weights to bulk up. He spent time and money on his appearance, ensuring that his dark hair and mustache were impeccably groomed. He had expensive tastes that his straight-laced endeavors couldn't support. So while he was a successful promoter for auto and cycle shows, he relied on less-than-legal side hustles to afford the fur coats and fancy cars he liked. He wore a bejeweled Star of David around his neck that earned him the nickname The Jewish Pimp. Though he didn't have a hefty rap sheet, he did have quite a reputation. Dorothy, on the other hand, had neither. She'd only had one boyfriend before and was still a virgin when Paul met her. After she and Paul began dating, he kept encouraging her to model. Specifically, he wanted to see her on the pages of Playboy magazine, which had been launched 25 years prior with nude images of Marilyn Monroe on its cover and was in the midst of searching for a 25th anniversary playmate. 
playmates were the magazine's version of pinup girls. Dorothy demurred. She wasn't comfortable posing nude, and besides, she was still just 18, while the age of consent in Canada was 19. But Paul was persistent, and he eventually won the argument. Jeff Snyder, Paul's brother. She didn't feel comfortable doing it. There was arguing going on, I recall that. Dorothy crying, you know, and Paul trying to convince her that this is right, that it'll be fine, it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, Go ahead, do it. Because Dorothy was technically underage, Paul forged her mother's signature on a consent form and sent the images to Playboy. The day after the photos arrived, the magazine contacted Dorothy to have her flown to L.A. Just her. Paul wasn't invited, though Paul did swing by to visit as he was able. Eventually, Dorothy paid for him to move there. Ken Honey, who did photography work for Playboy, said it was clear from the start that Paul did not like relinquishing control. What an earache he was. He must have, must have asked me, did you hear from Dorothy or this or that, a dozen times a day. So I photographed a bunch of shots of him just to keep him quiet. I appealed to his ego, and <laughs> it worked. Dorothy hadn't been selected as the 25th anniversary playmate, but she still got to work straight away as an upcoming centerfold, moving into a guest house on the Playboy Mansion grounds in the interim. Whatever reluctance she'd had in first posing nude seemed to vanish when she stepped in front of the camera. Photographers who worked with her said she was a natural on film, despite, or maybe because of, her obvious naivete. Photo editor Marilyn Grabowski. She was so eager, so fragile, that I immediately felt this girl's got to be protected. I met a lot of naive girls from small towns, but not to the degree that Dorothy was. She was named the August Playmate of the Month in 1979. Early the following year, she got the magazine's most coveted designation, Playmate of the Year. Hugh Hefner found her exciting on a couple of levels. Sure, she was gorgeous, but so were all the other models Hefner surrounded himself with at his mansion, which was notorious for the risque parties he threw on its grounds. But Dorothy was more than just another model. When Hefner made a promotional video featuring Dorothy along with several other models, her star quality was obvious. On screen, she was luminous, she was sensitive and smart and talented, which Hefner could see seemed ready to translate to a film career, something that would help legitimize him as a real Hollywood player rather than simply someone who threw parties that Hollywood folk liked to attend. In short, Dorothy's star potential could rub off on him. Now, it's long been speculated that Hefner might have insisted on sex from Dorothy to land the title bestowed upon her, though the question wasn't raised until after her death, so there's no way of knowing for sure what the truth is. Hefner denied ever sleeping with Dorothy at all, saying she was quite discerning on that front and not at all, quote-unquote, loose. Gross. People who don't believe Hefner wonder if Dorothy had agreed to marry Paul Snyder as a way to protect herself from future assaults. Other people said she married Paul because she felt she owed it to the guy. He said he loved her, it was his prodding that had landed her in L.A., and Dorothy probably mistook the volatility in their relationship as passion or even love. According to Hefner, 
She came to me very much as she might to a father and told me that she was going to marry Paul. It was difficult to respond to that. I urged her against it, but I did it gently because I really felt it would be an affront and inappropriate for me to say what I really felt. Whatever the truth, Paul and Dorothy were married June 1, 1979. It was not an idyllic pairing. Anything that you might say about Dorothy, the opposite was true of Paul. In other words, Dorothy made this incredible impression. Everybody loved her, and almost everyone was universally put off by Paul. That was partly because Paul was so incredibly controlling, not just of Dorothy, but also of her money. He meddled with her projects, too, fashioning himself as her manager, lawyer, agent, and husband, all rolled into one. Former playmate Roseanne Caton Walden said that Paul always seemed a little off. He was always a bit uncomfortable at the mansion and at the parties. He knew that he was out of his element. He just had a nasty, nasty vibe. At one point, he tried to get Hefner to buy a sex chair he had designed. That chair will come up again later in the story. But Dorothy's star was rising, which let her do something she had never imagined as a kid. She was able to financially take care of her family. As she told one reporter, My family is important to me. We were brought up through a lot of hard times, and when we stepped them out together, I've never had a father to support the family, so it's always been my mother. Dorothy would send money to her mom and sister, with whom she'd been very close. Louise said, She opened up my first bank account. She would put money in it, like once a month, and to save up for braces. The family that she had initially worried about disappointing by posing nude was actually elated by her success. This is Louise talking to a reporter way back then. Would you like to be just like your sister when you grow up? Yeah. Why? Because I'm proud of her. Dorothy had grown up poor enough that she'd started working to help out her mom as a teen, and now money was just being thrown at her. As she told Johnny Carson after winning Playmate of the Year, I got a $65,000 Russian sable fur coat and a $25,000 check and a $26,000 Jaguar and... (laughs) And a $13,000 bathtub. And <laughs> oh, what, what, what would a $13,000 bathtub, I mean? It's made of brass. It was handmade, and it has uh, four jacuzzi jets on the inside. It fits about 10 people. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> what are we going to tell the other eight? Not to... <laughs> you can hear in her voice she's kind of wowed by it all, which is probably why she didn't think twice about being so generous with it. And to be sure, she was as generous with her husband as she was with her family, though Paul's support of his wife wasn't as sincere as Louise's. His was more of the self-serving variety. He would routinely boast to people about how he and Dorothy were headed for the moon, so great would be her stardom. While Dorothy's family was grateful for and humbled by the money she sent them, Paul blew through his and demanded more. Meanwhile, he'd berate Dorothy, calling her stupid and naive. Yet it was Paul who could barely keep a job. That's where he overlapped with Chippendales, leading to his character's inclusion in the recent Hulu series' first episode. As the series depicted, 
Paul did visit while owner Steve Banerjee was trying to find his footing running a high-end backgammon club called Destiny 2. Paul touted his supposed promotional savvy and promised to help the struggling venture. First, Paul emceed a mud wrestling event, then later suggested that Banerjee try launching a male strip club catering to female audiences. It was Paul Schneider who actually created the Chippendale Dancers. After having failed at several incarnations of his business, it was this one, the one Banerjee named Chippendales after 18th century furniture maker Thomas Chippendale as a way to class up the endeavor, that would finally take off. How involved Dorothy was in this matter isn't totally clear. While Chippendales was mentioned in early reports about her death, it was only in relation to Paul having formerly worked there as a promoter. It's possible, though, that Stratton did indeed suggest that the male dancers there adopt a uniform akin to Hefner's Playboy bunnies, who notoriously wore tight teddies and bunny ears at the mansion. The Chippendales version was cufflinks and bow ties on bare-chested men who otherwise wore only snug underwear. Welcome to Chippendales made a point to time Paul Snyder's mental meltdown with the arrival of a new choreographer at the club alongside Dorothy's chance restaurant encounter with Peter Bogdanovich, who's depicted as only just having shown interest in the young ingenue. In reality, Dorothy by then had been cast in several movies, most notably Bogdanovich's They All Laughed. Not only was filming for that movie finished, but she and Paul had been separated and she and Peter had been quietly falling in love just as the 1980 Playmate of the Year designation was announced. The show took dramatic license with the timing of things, but it got one of the most crucial elements right. Paul's breakdown was about control. When Dorothy Stratton began exerting some over her life, Paul's reaction was to violently snatch it away. By August of 1980, Dorothy Stratton and Paul Snyder were no longer living together. They were separated, and as far as anyone on the outside could tell, both were moving on with their lives. Dorothy was in love with Peter Bogdanovich, whose movie featuring her was slated for an early 1981 release. Bogdanovich said she had that all-too-elusive it factor in spades. She was uh, the most uh, natural young actress I've ever worked with. She was uh, amazing. She had everything that you could have. She had timing and she had wit. Bogdanovich was newly single when he met Stratton. His previous relationship had been with another ingenue, this time Sybil Shepard, whom he met when she appeared in his 1971 film, The Last Picture Show. That relationship had been quite the scandal because Bogdanovich had been married when it started to a production designer on the film named Polly Platt. Shepard, meanwhile, had been in a relationship with co-star Jeff Bridges. In short, this wasn't an easy-to-hide affair. Platt and Bogdanovich divorced in the aftermath, after which Shepard and Bogdanovich moved in together. The relationship lasted until around 1978 when Shepard reportedly visited her boyfriend while he was filming a movie in Singapore and realized he was sleeping with an actress on that film too. Shepard moved out of their shared home and soon got pregnant by a new lover, which left Bogdanovich distraught. 
They All Laughed was partly inspired by that heartache, with John Ritter playing a Bogdanovich-like character. The movie filmed in spring and summer of 1980. She had a kind of glow, and uh, the way she talked, the way she moved, uh, her laugh. Uh, she was very smart, uh, you know, to talk to. Great to have a conversation and a great sense of humor. I mean, I just uh, uh, fell for her. Dorothy fell to... While she wasn't overt about her relationship with the director, she also didn't pretend that things were fine with Paul. Their communications grew terse. When she'd return home from New York City to see him, they would argue, and she would end up going back earlier than planned. Paul knew he was losing his grip on her, but to outsiders, he didn't seem particularly heartbroken. In fact, he had also hooked up with someone else another young, beautiful, would-be model whom he tried to fashion into a sort of Dorothy 2.0. But this other woman wasn't the same, didn't have the same je ne sais quoi that Dorothy had, so his efforts weren't paying off as he had hoped. He'd always been quick to tell Dorothy that he had made her, that without him, she was nothing. Turned out, that wasn't true. He'd simply spotted in her a star quality that she had been too humble to see herself that he couldn't recreate the magic with just anyone was worrisome because Paul was broke. Despite his role in Dorothy's stardom being obviously minuscule, Paul was the type of guy who still insisted on taking credit for her success. Now that she was worth more than a million dollars, he expected his cut. Dorothy was in a tough spot. She was only 20 years old, in love with someone else, and trying to extricate herself from a clearly unhealthy marriage. She had even realized that Paul had hired a private investigator to follow her. That man, Mark Goldstein, was a freelance detective who would call in Dorothy's whereabouts to Paul on a regular basis. Dorothy tried putting up boundaries with Paul to prevent him from taking advantage of her any further. At the same time, Paul was finding that his wife wasn't the only person sick of him. Hugh Hefner reportedly made it clear about this time that Paul wasn't welcome to hang out at the Playboy Mansion anymore either. Hefner always kept the Playmates' husbands at arm's length, but he had a special disdain reserved for Paul, a guy even he considered sleazy. Hefner had warned Dorothy that he didn't like or trust Paul, he would later say, but she felt beholden to her husband. With the couple separated, Hefner at least got to do what he'd always would have preferred. Tell Paul he wasn't Playboy Mansion material. That was one of the big points in the deterioration of Paul Schneider. This is Chip Clark, a friend of Paul's. It was definitely a profound psychological change in him when he was no longer welcome at the mansion. It was around then that Paul became determined to get his hands on a gun. He'd asked Goldstein about a machine gun, and while Goldstein talked him out of that particular idea, he obviously wasn't overly concerned with Paul's desire for a weapon. It was Goldstein, in fact, who reportedly gave Paul an issue of the paper containing an ad for the shotgun that he would ultimately buy. Though they didn't know it at the time, Dorothy and Peter had one night been stalked by Paul, who was hiding outside of the director's home. He was waiting in the bushes that night. It's only afterward that we figured out that he'd already bought a gun and was threatening to kill everybody. On August 14th, Dorothy told Bogdanovich 
that she had a meeting planned with her lawyer that day. She was lying. She was really going to meet Paul in person. Now, she certainly meant it to be a white lie because she didn't want Bogdanovich to worry about her, but the conversation that followed would haunt the filmmaker the rest of his days. She was going to see her lawyer, she told me, and then she had a shoot at Playboy. She was very edgy and very nervous, and I was very unhappy that she was leaving. We didn't really have a good parting. On the whole, though, Dorothy felt she could handle Paul, that the people who worried about his controlling behavior simply didn't know him as well as she did. She planned to meet him that day alone in hopes of talking through terms of their divorce as amicably as possible. At first, she had her sister Louise with her. Louise later said, We were going to go to Paul's. I said, you know what, maybe I won't go to the beach. She dropped me off, and uh, she promised me that she'd pick me up at 2 o'clock, and I was waiting. Dorothy arrived at Paul's at about 12.30 p.m. Besides Louise, the only person who knew of the estranged couple's plan to meet in person was apparently Goldstein, the P.I. An hour or so after Dorothy arrived, Goldstein called Paul to see how the meeting was going. Paul answered the phone and said all was fine. Goldstein called again around 2 p.m. This time, Paul didn't answer. Goldstein would try again and again, but Paul's phone just kept ringing. Finally, Goldstein asked some friends of Paul's to check his apartment. Stephen Kushner and Patty Lorman would later recall walking into a horrifying scene. Lorman said, quote, It looked like it was a horror movie, a staged horror movie, like mannequins and fake blood. That's a picture that never goes away, a mental picture that's stuck in here forever. End quote. Dorothy was nude, brutalized, and clearly dead from a shotgun blast to the left side of her face. As the Village Voice reported in a Pulitzer Prize-winning story, quote, Dorothy lay crouched across the bottom corner of a low bed. Both knees were on the carpet, and her right shoulder was drooping. Her blonde hair hung naturally, oddly unaffected by the violence to her countenance. The shell had entered above her left eye, leaving the bones of that seraphic face shattered and displaced in a welter of pulp. Her body, mocking the soft, languid poses of her pictorials, was in full rigor, end quote. A bloody handprint marred her backside, indicating she'd been moved and possibly assaulted after death. Based on the crime scene and the positioning of medical tape, She'd at some point been strapped to the sex chair prototype that Paul had designed with hopes to sell. Paul was also dead, sprawled across his bed on top of the shotgun, part of his face blown off. Both had been dead for hours, long enough that their bodies had drawn a trail of ants. When Goldstein heard what had happened, he called the police and headed over to Paul's. Begdanovich would later say that Goldstein was partly responsible for the murder-suicide, a claim that prompted Goldstein to file a $10 million lawsuit for slander. Hugh Hefner, who reportedly had been trying to reach Dorothy all day, was one of the first people to learn of her death. It was very unreal. And uh, the first order of business, obviously, was to call Peter and tell him. 
After Bogdanovich got the phone call, Hefner got word to the other playmates, some of whom would later say that the emphasis seemed to be on protecting Playboy's image more than on Dorothy or her colleagues' reactions to her shocking death. The playmates were instructed not to respond to any media queries. At first, officials reported that while the ordeal appeared to be a murder-suicide, they didn't want to rush to judgment. The early investigation weighed whether an intruder could have killed the couple, or perhaps somebody who'd come after Paul for, say, a drug debt and who opted to kill Dorothy, too, simply because she was there. In the end, though, police said, Our evidence uh, uncovered at the scene uh, leads us to believe that it was a murder-suicide. There's never been any evidence to the contrary. Peter Bogdanovich was clearly in shock in the aftermath of Dorothy's death. He immersed himself in editing They All Laughed, which he said he did alone, often with clenched fists as he stared at the last images captured of the woman he loved. Hefner said... He disappeared into the editing room for many, many months. And what it must have been like for him to be editing while trying to deal with the tragedy of her death. It's almost impossible to imagine. Bogdanovich reached out to Dorothy's family, of which only Dorothy's younger sister, Louise, knew about the filmmaker's role in Dorothy's life. Media covered the funeral from a distance because the family kept things as private as they could. Neither Louise nor Nellie, Dorothy's mother, spoke to reporters. Nellie's still new husband did, however. Burl Eldridge said the family was in shock and would need a long time to get over what had happened. Whether founded or not, Burl soon reported that Bogdanovich had crossed some lines in the wake of the tragedy. Eldridge accused the filmmaker first of seducing Nellie, then of seducing Louise, who was only 13 years old when the two initially met. Bogdanovich denied both allegations, while Eldridge was soon jettisoned from Nellie's life. She and Burl had married in May of 1980. They got divorced just eight months later. Bogdanovich soon sued Eldridge for slander, particularly for the allegations involving Louise. For a while, it seemed like the story was never going to leave the headlines. In fact, within a year... Two films about Dorothy's short life were in the works, the first being a made-for-TV movie about which Bogdanovich was quick to share his opinion. I didn't watch it, but uh, my lawyers uh, worked on, you know, making it possible so that we didn't have to sue him. Um, I, uh, I saw who was going to play it, and I read the script, and it, it, it bore no relation to any reality known to, you know, anybody that knew Dorothy or me. The girl who played it could not have been more wrong for the part. That girl, by the way, was a post-Halloween Jamie Lee Curtis. And the way the story was told was, you know, sort of on a comic strip level of reality. I thought it was in the worst possible taste and, and the worst possible artistic ability. Hefner wasn't a fan either, nor were Dorothy's mother and sister. When that movie aired, Stratton's biggest role to date hadn't yet hit the big screen. Her death was one of several factors that complicated the release of They All Laughed. It was, after all, a comedy starring a woman whose death was still being regularly written and talked about. 
The film's original distributor backed out while Bigdanovich was desperate to get it into theaters. So desperate, in fact, that he ended up putting $5 million of his own money into distributing it, which he would later say was a huge mistake. It led to him filing for bankruptcy in the mid-1980s. I wanted the picture to be seen. I wanted her to be seen, much as she could be. While not many people did see it, the few who did generally had positive things to say, especially about Dorothy's performance. This is a Texas TV reporter during an interview with Bogdanovich in 1981. In the clips, my goodness, she has a tremendous charisma and uh, just that whatever that thing is that... Uh, Makes a star. Yeah, she, right. she, has, she had that in spades. Bogdanovich never got over the loss. He was angry, of course, but not just with Snyder. He spent four years writing a book called The Killing of the Unicorn, in which he alleged that Hefner had assaulted Dorothy. Soon after the book's release, this news report came out. Hugh Hefner says that three and a half weeks ago, he suffered a stroke. A stroke he blames on Peter Bogdanovich, whose book charges that Hefner seduced Dorothy Stratton and lured her into a sordid playboy world that she secretly hated. Hefner fought back. Dorothy loved playboy. Dorothy's tragic death was motivated, not in any way, by her association with playboy, but clearly by the breakup of her marriage because of the affair with Peter Bogdanovich. He also alleged that Bogdanovich had seduced Louise, Dorothy's sister, who by then was still only 16. The pair denied anything more than being friends, and Louise and her mother sued Hefner in April of 1985 for $5 million. They dropped the lawsuit four months later, after which Bogdanovich and Hefner made peace with each other, if not with Dorothy's death. They both seemed to come to terms with the notion that neither was responsible for what had happened to Dorothy and that neither had handled the aftermath of the tragedy particularly well. Well, I think he went a little crazy. In fairness, Bigdanovich would later hint that that might have been true. I kind of kept it together and really didn't go to therapy, didn't do anything and didn't really do much. and Sort of fell apart completely five years later. And he also did end up marrying Louise when she turned 20 in 1988. They would explain the relationship this way. And he was really there for me and some sort of connection I had with him. And he um, became a lot of roles in my life. It seemed natural to uh, gravitate toward Dorothy's sister. It didn't seem unusual. We both felt blasted, so we kind of helped each other. That grew to be another kind of love. The two stayed married for 12 years and stayed friends for far longer. Louise even shared a co-writing credit with Bogdanovich in the 20-teens. Bogdanovich would never remarry after their divorce. Playboy, of course, continued, but its cachet took a hit. Hefner would call the 80s a dark decade. One of his top female executives, Mickey Garcia, would testify before the U.S. Attorney General's Commission on Pornography in 1985 to accuse Hefner of condoning illegal activities. 
Garcia was Playboy's Miss January 1973 and has recently said in a documentary called Secrets of Playboy that she was taken out of Playmate of the Year contention because she refused to sleep with Hefner. Still, she dutifully stayed on with the company, she said, until Stratton's death, which she described as a wake-up call. She told the AG panel that rape, attempted suicide, and violent crime were all part of the Playboy lifestyle. Granted, nothing really major came from this panel, but it was noteworthy in that it helped align feminists who worried about pornography's objectification of women with conservatives who condemned its vulgarity. And it did launch a discussion that has slowly morphed over the years into one about rape culture, one that at least tries to ensure that women in the sex industry are there because they choose to be and find it empowering rather than degrading. But the truth is that overall, this is one of those heartbreaking crimes in which you can't really point to any widespread good having come from it, which is one of the reasons the case continues to inspire books, film plots, TV shows, and yes, podcast episodes to this day. To research the story, Amanda Rossman found contemporary and retrospective news stories. The Village Voice piece, The Death of a Centerfold, was particularly helpful. For additional audio, the Biography Channel documentary had a ton of well-organized interviews, which I supplemented with other snippets and programs, including interviews with Peter Bogdanovich, spanning from 1981 through 2020. Bogdanovich died in 2022 at the age of 82. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 